encouraged to do things like this, to come see other churches, to see the people of God in other places. And it's amazing how it always feels just at home. While I dearly miss my congregation when I'm gone, we come and we sing with the same faith. We confess the same faith. We recite the Apostles' Creed as well. That one faith handed down to the saints. And it's a great encouragement to me and my soul. And I was also thinking that if your temperature today is going to be 100 degrees, that that's about 130 degrees difference than what I experienced this winter. So, well, and you include the wind chill, it's 160 degrees. So if you ever need pulpit supply in February, just give me a call. (laughs) Well, our, I'm serious. Well, our passage is Exodus 33, 18 through 34, uh, 8, which our brother read. Uh, Before we hear the preaching of the word, let's bow uh, once again in prayer and ask for God's blessing upon uh, the preaching. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for the power of your spirit to give us that illumination upon your text, that you may make it profitable to our souls. As Jesus called us, we are to be careful how we hear, not that not just that we hear, but how we hear. And so we need your spirit to be with us. We are finite. We are weak. We are frail. And so give us the power of your spirit to bless the preaching of your word, to bless the preaching of your word to the hearers, to bless our souls, to bless your people whom you have purchased with your own blood that we may grow further into conformity of Christ. We ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, many of us in here probably have a bucket list of things we want to see. And one of the things I want to see is the Grand Tetons there in Wyoming. I have yet uh, to see that. I would uh, love to see the fall colors in the Northeast. Or Alaska, I have yet to to visit Alaska. That's something I would really love to see at some point. And then when it comes to certain animals, uh, I would love to see a mountain lion in the wild or one of those albino moose or uh, a lynx. That's kind of a certain type of cat that is really rare to see. Those are things that are kind of on a bucket list of things that I would like to see. And you probably have a similar list of places you would like to see, animals you'd like to see, shows you would like to see at some point in your life. Now, why are these things attractive to us? Why are these things that we would desire? They're not bad inherently to desire. Well, it's because they have a certain glory to them, albeit a creaturely glory, but nevertheless a certain glory to them. Something that's pleasing to the eyes, a delight to the senses, some beauty, majesty. Well, in today's passage, Moses asked for the greatest thing you can ever see. And that is to see God's glory. Glory means his heaviness or the the weightiness of something. 
what makes it so great and even breathtaking. Now, Moses has already been getting glimpses throughout Exodus. The burning bush, the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And then that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire descended upon Mount Sinai and set the whole mountain ablaze. These are quite amazing sights. And then he had the privilege of going up on the mountain and eating in the presence of God where he saw God above him under a sea of glass. And here in our passage, Moses is asking God's presence to return to the people after they had sinned. And since God has been so gracious in answering Moses' requests, Moses asks for the greatest request of all, and that is to see his glory. And God does grant this request, but as we'll see, with limits. And from this passage, we too get a glimpse of the glory of God, what it is, what it consists in. And so what I want us to look at are three manifestations of God's glory that should cause us to quickly bow and worship him. And those manifestations are, first, his goodness, second, his name, and third, his sovereignty. His goodness, his name, and his sovereignty. So first, his goodness. Uh, We see in verse 19, the first part, and he said, that is God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So when Moses asks to see God's glory, God responds by saying, I will have all my goodness pass before you. So we see that God's glory consists in his goodness. Now, good is one of those words we use quite a bit, don't we? And we know or at least we think we know what we mean when we say it, until somebody asks us to define it. What is good? There's several aspects to the word good. It can refer to several different things. We use it to refer to something that has high quality. We say, for example, that food was really good. And that means it tasted good. It wasn't undercooked. It wasn't overcooked. It wasn't like the guy that grills, like I did yesterday, where I asked everybody how they wanted their hamburgers before I ended up burning them anyway. (laughs) Good can refer to something that is beneficial as opposed to harmful. When we ask our kids to eat their broccoli... They don't want to, but what do we say? It's good for you. We're using good in a different sense. We're saying it's healthy. It's beneficial as opposed to harmful like junk food. Good can refer to something that is sound and has integrity. We speak of a building or a bridge or arguments or a person's moral character, these we can call good. Well, all of these aspects, in some sense, can apply to God. Uh, He is the highest being, 
that any of us can desire most good, most delightful, in whose presence there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand there is pleasures forevermore. God is good in that he always does what is best, always does what is good for us, and does not in any way harm us. Even in our trials, he is working out all things for the good of those who love him. He is good in that he always does what is best in never being wicked. Even to the wicked, he is good in that he causes his son to rise on both the just and the unjust. And he is good in carrying out righteous judgments. So even in judging the wicked, God is good. God can said to be good in all of these ways. However, we must keep in mind that God is not defined by good, but rather good is defined by God. It's not the case that God conforms to this concept or ideal of goodness that exists outside of him, independent of him, or apart from him that he just naturally conforms to. Rather, what good is, is defined by who God is. And this, God will cause to pass before Moses. However, there will be limits to this. We see in verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So God is going to have all his goodness pass before Moses, but there's going to be limits. The way God puts it is that Moses cannot see God's face. And the passage in 1 Timothy just corresponds very well to this. It should go without saying that God does not have a face, a literal face. God is not a man or a creature. He is pure spirit without body, parts, or passions. When God says face here, he is using human body parts as a figure of speech to describe different degrees of revelation. Not seeing his face means that Moses will not be able to see the fullness of who God is. The fullness of God's revelation. And the reason for that is because as God says here in verse 20, man, man cannot see my face or see me and live. Notice God does not say may not, but cannot. Cannot is a matter of ability. Man is not able to see God's face. And the reason for this is because God is an infinite being. And we are finite. What does that mean? God is boundless and without limit. We have boundaries. We, as finite creatures, have limits. We cannot be everywhere at once. God is. God is without measure and eternal in his being, wisdom, power, 
holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We can never exhaust the depths of God as finite creatures, even when we're in heaven. Because we will not become infinite in heaven. We will still be finite, although glorified and perfect. Yet the infinite will never fit into the finite. And so we will always be amazed with God forever. And so to have a full revelation, to see God's face, to know God the way he knows himself, is impossible for man. While we can know him truly, we only know him finitely. This is why God says, no man can see my face. This is why Moses is only going to see his back or after effects, as it were, in verse 23, as verse 23 says. But the other issue here is man's sin. Moses needs to be hid in the cleft of the rock the whole time of only seeing God's back. We see this in verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So in order for God's glorious presence to draw near. Moses needed protection from this presence. And how God protected Moses was by putting him in the cleft of the rock. Did you notice that in verse 21? The rock. This is not a rock. This is not any old rock. Rather, God calls it the rock. It has notoriety. It's a specific and particular rock of which God is speaking. Well, what is this rock? Well, earlier on in Exodus, we saw what the rock is if we were to read it. Back in Exodus chapter 17, it's this rock that was struck. If you remember the story... God's people were grumbling and complaining. And they charged God with breaking his covenant. Saying, you're not good. You're not going to keep your promises. You just brought us out here to die. And God had promised not only to bring them out of Egypt, but all the way to the promised land, not just to have them die in the wilderness. That was God's promise. God's people are saying, God, you're lying to us. And that's a serious charge in the ancient Near East with regards to covenants. They are saying that God has broken his covenant. And it says in that passage that they tested God. Another way of putting it, to bring out the meaning of that, is they put God on trial. You violated your covenant. Are you going to stand against your charges, O God? And God says, okay, let's, let's have a judgment Let's have a courtroom scene. And so God stands above this rock. 
And God has the people gather before this rock. And he has the elders go before the people in order to represent them and the charges they're bringing against God. So is God going to stand up to these charges? Well, obviously, God is without any sin, so who's going to win, right? And so God says, Moses, take the rod with which you judged Egypt. All those judgments of God administered through this judgment rod. And you take that, and whoever is guilty is going to be struck with this judgment rod. And what would you anticipate? Turn around and strike the people, right? But in this story, the rock is judged. The rock is stricken. And that judgment stroke against the rock results in life-giving blessings to the people to save them from their dying thirst. What is that about? Well, I actually read a commentary on this that is perfect and infallible. It comes from 1 Corinthians 10. Had you nervous, didn't I? comes from 1 Corinthians 10, where it says, in no uncertain terms, and the rock was Christ. You see what God's doing there. The rock is a picture of Christ. The rock pointed to Christ. The rock typified Christ. And in that scene, with the rock being struck, it reveals how God would save his people who are sinful and worthy of judgment. Rather than them receiving the judgment stroke, the rock would receive the judgment stroke in their place, resulting not in them being judged, but in them being saved with this life-giving water that flows freely from it to this grumbling people who deserve nothing but God's judgment. And this rock is the same rock that would keep Moses safe. The rock typifies Christ here in this passage that we're looking at, and that it is the refuge to be placed in to protect from the glorious presence of God. See, Moses needed protection from God. Not because God's evil or out to get him, but because he is infinitely holy. And man, even Moses is sinful, and evil cannot dwell in his presence. But God comes up with a solution. And so the solution was to place Moses in the rock. Being in the rock is what protected Moses from God. And this points to Christ, in that Christ is our protection From a holy God, we who are sinful, it is by being placed in Christ, in this rock, that we are kept safe. And being in Christ is Scripture's way of speaking of union with Christ. This invisible, but very real, 
spiritual connection or bond, inseparable bond with our Lord. And what that comes with is all that is ours becomes Christ, and all that is Christ becomes ours. But what do we bring to the table? We bring our sin. But it becomes Christ in that it's counted against him. He bears it as if he had committed it even though there was no sin in him. But it becomes his before God. And he bears it for us. And what do we get? We get his perfect righteousness counted as ours, credited to us as if we had lived his righteous life. That's how God sees us. It becomes ours. And so we who are in Christ are as righteous as Jesus himself. You know why? Because his righteousness is counted as ours. That perfect life of obedience to the law, even under testing, God credits freely to us by simply receiving it as a free gift. This is how we are kept safe from his judgment and wrath against our sin. It is by being in Christ. And this too demonstrates the goodness of God, that he would make sure to keep us safe even from himself. Uh, Notice God's concern here. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I am going to put you in the cleft of this rock. God doesn't say you need to come up with a safety plan for when I'm coming. God says, no, I will take care of it all for you. That's the goodness of our God. The second manifestation of God's glory that should cause us to quickly bow to worship his name. We just saw his goodness. The second is his name. Returning again to verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So when Moses asked for God to show him his glory, God not only said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, he also said, I will proclaim to you my name. God's glory is manifested in the proclamation of his name. Now, what does name refer to? You know, when we think of a name, we think of something that sounds nice or a way to designate somebody, a way to distinguish one person from another so we know about whom we're speaking. But that's not what is meant by God's name. It's deeper than that. God's name refers to who God is. His revelation, his character, as revealed in his works. In the Psalms, the psalmist often says, I will sing praises to your name. And this is what we did here this morning, didn't we? But when we did that, when we were singing praises to God's name, were some letters put up here that says L-O-R-D, and we all sing to that? No, of course not. We were singing to God. To sing praises to God's name is to sing praises to him. It is who he is, the revelation of himself. 
And we see God's name, who he is, his glory proclaimed in chapter 34. But in this meeting with God, to see his glory, Moses was to take two tablets of the covenant again. And this shows God's grace in renewing this covenant that had been broken, despite his people breaking it. However, did he notice something here in verse 1? The particular focus of who broke the covenant. The end of verse 1, God says that Moses broke the first tablets. And of course, this is true. When Moses came down the mountain and he saw the golden calf and the pagan worship and and the immorality, he took the tablets and shattered them. It's a sign that the covenant has been broken. But it's interesting here that God only calls attention to Moses breaking the covenant rather than the people. And I believe what we're seeing here is a shadow of Christ and that the mediator is going to take the blame for the covenant breaking of the people. And then the mediator is going to recreate the new tablets on which this covenant is written. Because God has Moses cut out the stones on which the law is written. But it would be on Christ to take the blame for all the covenant breaking of his people. With all those sins placed on him. But he would establish a new covenant. He is the one who would take out our stony hearts and write the law, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our heart. Now, Moses goes up all alone on the mountain, not even an animal of their flock is to be on it. And this is where we see God reveal his glory in the proclamation of his name in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 34 where it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this proclamation of God's name, who he is, is repeated about a dozen times in the Old Testament. It is an important revelation. But we notice that in answer to Moses' request to see his glory, Nothing is reported about what Moses sees, but only in what is heard. The glory of God's name is understood in the proclamation of his word. Not with the physical eyes, but the eyes of faith. As his word and works are revealed And so we see here 
God's goodness and glory in this proclamation. First, God declares his covenant name twice, the Lord. Now, some of your translations have Lord in all caps. And that's the English translator's way of referring to the name Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. It's a derivative of the name I am. If you remember, when Moses asked what God's name was, God responded by saying, I am. I am who I am. And what this refers to is the fact that God It's not like us. God is self-existent. God just is. He is life and existence itself. He depends on no one for his existence, no one for his attributes, no one for his life. God has never received anything, and no one has ever taken anything away from God. He has never been improved upon. You can't add anything to infinity. And his blessedness in life has never been robbed of him. No creature can rob him of any of these things. And so he is who he is. And he will always be who he will always be. There is no turning of shadow with thee. And this is reflected in the image of the burning bush from which God spoke. You remember that? This interesting sight? This flame in the midst of a bush. And what does fire do with the bush? Consumes it, right? Well, this flame is a bit different. This flame is in the midst of the bush, but it's not using the bush as fuel for this flame. It's an independent flame. It's a flame that exists apart from needing fuel to live. And this is a revelation of God in that great name I am. He is in need of nothing and no one to exist. And yet, being in the midst of the bush, he is with his people And so this covenant name, God is independent, he is the great I am, and yet he is with his people to save them. That flame would come down and lead the people out. It's a flame of fire by day, a pillar of cloud by day, and a flame of fire by night. Second, God says he is merciful. Some translations say compassionate. And this is God showing his care in light of our fallen condition and helpless state. It is to pity us because of how ruined we are by our sin in this sin-cursed world. And God helps us understand his compassion with an analogy from our own experiences. Psalm 103.19 says, As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, as those who hope in him, trust him, and stand in awe of him. You know, this past winter, what winter is in Wyoming is it snows, it's cold. I'm not sure what winter's like here. Is it like 
probably what our summer's like up there. We had several rounds of sickness go through our home, just one virus after another. It just didn't seem to end. And of course, I don't like getting sick. Not sure about you. But it's kind of hard to avoid getting sick when you have kids. And, you know, one of my, my daughters, I figured out why she got sick. I turned around the corner and she's licking the door handle. <laughs> kids don't do that. And, you know, you ask the question, why do you do that? And I don't know. So, of course, she gets sick. And she, she comes into my room uh, wrapped in a blanket around her looking miserable and with these big eyes says she wants to cuddle with me. <laughs> and what happens? Well, as a father, my heart is moved to comfort her and to have her cuddle with me. But the compassion for her outweighed my disgust for the sickness. We have an analogy here with God. It is similar with God. His compassion for us in our sin outweighs the offense of our sin. And so he sent Christ to not merely get sick, but to become sin. That is to bear our sin and face greater consequences than getting sick face the wrath of God for us. You know why? Because he is compassionate. He is merciful. And he came to rescue us from our sin. And this relates to a third attribute mentioned, and that is the Lord is gracious. Grace is God showing his favor freely to those who do not deserve it. And God does this in the redemption of sinners and freely giving them eternal life, heaven, and the joy of his presence without any merits on our own. In fact, when we have the opposite, when we have demerits. And he shows his common grace to all and giving them good gifts in his creation, his sun to rise on them, the rain to fall on them, giving them foods and wine and earthly comforts and joy in this creation despite them not acknowledging him and even cursing him in their hearts. And this relates to the fourth thing mentioned, and that is God is slow to anger. Now God's anger doesn't imply that God is frustrated or upset or he has a commotion within or disturbed within by mere creatures. Rather, it refers to God executing his righteous justice on sinners and punishing them. However, this is something that God is slow to do. He is patient, long-suffering, and bears with sinners in kindness. But he is more quick to love, which is the next attribute that God proclaims, abounding in steadfast love. When talking about his anger, he describes it as slow. Talking about his love, he describes it as abounding, overflowing. God's love is his goodwill towards sinners and desiring their best and doing good towards them, despite 
their sin. And this love of God is steadfast, or his covenant love. He has sworn to it, and steadfast means it's unchanging, it's unchangeable. It does not fluctuate up and down based upon how well we're doing. God does not love us less when we sin. It doesn't dip down. But neither does God love us more when we are doing well. You could be the most faithful saint in all the world right now. And yet God would not love you more than the saint that has just fallen into the most egregious sin. His love is steadfast, not fluctuating, because it's not based on us, it's based on who he is. And therefore he is faithful. He is faithful to his covenant promises. What he says he does He remains true to his word. When he says, I will remember your sins no more, God will not be found a liar. He remains committed to love his people. And therefore, verse 7 says, He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this this is one of the most amazing things with our God. That with him there is forgiveness. All the false gods in this world, all the false gods that have ever existed, you don't hear a forgiveness with them. And this is what caused Micah to exclaim, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He delights To show steadfast love. With every evil person and every false deity, forgiveness is not heard of. Rather, you need to perform. You need to work to prevent whatever this deity is or this evil person is from getting angry at you. And you never know when you're going to cross the line. But with God, there is forgiveness. That word forgiveness used here means to lift. It's to lift a burden off of someone. And what greater burden is there than the awful load of our guilt and the consequences of that guilt? There's a lot of burdens we bear in this life. Go through hardships, go through trials. But in those hardships and trials... We can look to God and we can say, God, these things are happening to me. Would you be with me? But what happens when we sin against this God? And that guilt, that weight of our guilt is upon our conscience. Can we go to God then and say, God, would you lift even this? And the answer is yes. God forgives. He lifts that burden on our conscience off. He lifts the burden of pain for that sin. He lifts the burden of needing to measure up to the law 
with righteousness to avoid his judgment. He has taken care of all of that and laid it on Christ to bear. Christ is the one who is our surety. Christ is the one who became our righteousness in living a perfect life for us. He covered that. He obeyed the law. We have all the righteousness we need in Christ. We don't add to it. And he took care of that penalty and pain for all our sin. That burden, believer, will never be laid on you. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. And from this, we also see the final attribute in verse 7, God's justice. It says, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the, children to the ch- and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And from here, we see that God is a God of justice, that he does justly and righteously. God will in no way turn a blind eye to sin. To turn a blind eye to sin and let wickedness go unpunished would be evil. But how can God pardon sin and still punish it? And this is where we see God's wisdom on display in the cross, in that God is both the just just and the justifier of the one who trusts in Christ, where our sins were punished and pardoned there on the cross. And so God's glory is most vividly seen in the cross of Christ, that glorious gospel. Now, the visiting of the iniquity of the fathers to the children is part of the old covenant. God will later on say through the prophet Ezekiel that this will no longer be the case. But what we should notice here is the comparison of God's justice to the third and fourth generation versus showing steadfast love to thousands And this demonstrates God's readiness to abound in love versus his slowness to execute his justice. Is this the way we view God? That God is slow to anger, but delights to show you mercy. We tend to think of it the other way around. God's slow to show us mercy and grace. But he is just waiting for us to slip up. He's quick to anger. We tend to think of it the other way around. Rather than what God himself says here in his revelation. No, no, I'm slow to anger. And I abound. I delight. I love to show love and mercy. One final manifestation of God's glory that should cause us to quickly bow to worship him. We saw first his goodness, second his name, third and briefly his sovereignty. Going back to verse 19 of Exodus 33. Exodus 33, 19, the middle of the verse. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now this verse seems to kind of come out of, the, come out of nowhere when you're just reading the context, but it is in response to Moses' question, to Moses' request for God to show him his glory. 
in the broader context of Moses asking God to forgive them. And so what God is saying here is that not only will he show Moses his glory, he will also show others his glory, but only those to whom he wills to be gracious. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, in quoting this verse, he uses it in the context of God's sovereignty and election while mentioning Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. Now, God's sovereignty and election is in light of showing mercy or grace, which assumes what? Sin. You only need mercy when you have done something to merit judgment. It is God not giving you the judgment you deserve. But God is under no obligation to show mercy to anyone. We only deserve his judgment. The only thing God is obliged to show out of his righteous character is to judge sinners. And so it must of necessity be of his own free and sovereign will to show mercy. If God says, the reason I show you mercy as opposed to someone else is because you did something that the other person didn't do, Even if it was one thing, even if it was a decision, you did the right thing in this case, you made the right decision, therefore you get this rather than the other person. Then it by definition ceases to be mercy. It's something that's owed to you. But when God shows mercy to someone, it is for nothing they did. Now we must affirm that this mercy is available to all. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's called the free offer of the gospel. And this, uh, this is the means through which God bestows mercy, those who call out in his name. So we can't have this weird view where there's a line of people coming to Jesus asking for forgiveness, and Jesus like, yeah, you too, I'll forgive. You too, I won't. You too, I'll forgive. No, anyone who comes to him, he will in no way cast out. But who are the ones who will come to him? Those whom the Father draws. His sheep. All whom the Father has given to him will come to him. And those who come to him, he will in no way cast out. And so that's why we give the call to all. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you have come to Christ, rejoice. You are one of his He showed you mercy. So may you always delight in this grace he has shown. So brothers and sisters, may truly seeing God's glory in his goodness, in the proclamation of his name, even this morning we have seen his glory, and in his sovereign goodness towards us, cause you to quickly bow before him in worship. Amen. Let's pray.